I'm excited to be here with you guys. It's kind of fun. I'm not teaching today, so I get to kind of sit and enjoy. Uh, and I'm really stoked for what we've got. We've got uh, a friend of mine, Jerry Root. Jerry and his wife, Claudia, came to us from uh, Wheaton for this weekend uh, to share. And Dr. Root was, about 12 years ago, was uh, a professor of mine in a class on C.S. Lewis. Uh, Dr. Root is one of the leading C.S. Lewis scholars in the world, travels all around the world uh, lecturing on C.S. Lewis, giving talks on Lewis, and then teaches at Wheaton as an adjunct professor at Biola. Uh, and about 12 years ago, kindled and kind of created a lifelong passion for C.S. Lewis in me. So if you've ever wondered why, or if you've ever been annoyed at uh, the fact that we always have a C.S. Lewis quote in the bulletin, Jerry will be available afterwards for you to talk to, and you can feel free to complain to him. Um, but I'm really excited. Dr. Root uh, has his PhD from the British Open University in C.S. Lewis and the Problem of Evil. Uh, he has a MDiv from Talbot, where he kind of grew up in Southern California, has a lot of fascinating things, uh, stories that way as well. But the, the real fascinating thing about Dr. Root is that he's one of those people that makes an impact on people in a very short amount of time. Uh, he leaves an imprint. And so no matter where you go or the people that you talk to that have had Dr. Root or taken his class, uh, in some way, shape, or form, he has impacted all of them. And so uh, it was kind of with real joy for me to be able to get him to come out and to be able to share with us, do Redux after this service as well, uh, because he is a man of incredible insight and incredible wisdom. Uh, and I think we're going to be able to benefit from that today. So I, I look, really look forward to this message, and I look even more forward to the Q&A afterwards. And I would just ask you guys to please give a warm welcome to Dr. Jerry Root. Thank you, Ken. It's my joy to be with you. Um, I have heard about this church ever since you first started some five years ago, and we have talked about the possibility of my maybe coming, and I'm really grateful that you have allowed me to come here, and that Ken has allowed me to love on the people he loves most in this world, his family and his congregation. Um, I want to talk about the love of God today, and as I talk about it, I will weave some Lewis into the discussion, but I'm not interested at all about you getting stuck on Lewis. And this isn't really about him. Maybe I can explain it. Uh, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and I always had a love affair of words. I wasn't very academically inclined. Um, my only interest for going to college, you have to take this by faith now, but I was an athlete back then. <laughs> and I wanted to keep playing sports. I wasn't academically inclined, but I was always fascinated by words. And I remember the first time I ever fell in love with a word. It was in Mrs. Reinhardt's first grade class. She's going through vocabulary cards, and it was the word swish. And I still love that onomatopoeic word, and my loyalties to it were long before it became popularized by a clean shot in basketball. But one word I have in particular mind this morning that might be helpful for us. Um, we wanted, I, I desperately wanted to eat lunch in the cafeteria at our elementary school. I'd see the kids going in there every day. I wondered what that life was like, but, but it cost 31 cents, and, and we couldn't afford the 31 cents for lunch. My mom always made us a brown bag lunch sandwich, a couple cookies and an apple, but I wanted to go there, and one day to my complete surprise as I left the house, she handed me the 31 cents and said, you could eat in the cafeteria today. 
I was panicked as I put it in my pocket that it might fall out during recess or something. I would check every once in a while to make sure it was still there. But now I go into the cafeteria, it seems my dream's fulfilled. I couldn't have described it for you then, like I will now, but these were my feelings. Being unfamiliar with the sociological protocols of cafeteria life, was I going to go in there and do something that was culturally unacceptable and therefore be made fun of by the rest of the, skid, the, rest of the kids? That's what was on my mind. I did as the girl in front of me did. I watched her intensely. She took her 31 cents. She gave it to the lady at the cash register. She grabbed her fiberglass tray. She put on her knife, her fork, her spoon. She took it over to that chrome roll bar counter. Do you remember that thing? And the first item on the menu were string beans. I hated string beans. <laughs> I don't know if I like them any better now. And, and apparently the girl didn't like them either because she used a word I'd never heard before. This is our word. She said to the cafeteria lady, do, do you remember the cafeteria lady? She was kind of heavy set. She had gray hair and a, and a hairnet, and she had a, a white outfit with a white apron and smudge marks all over it. She was the ubiquitous cafeteria lady who worked in every cafeteria in every elementary school in America. So the girl said to the lady, I'll have a small portion of those, please. I'd never heard the word portion before, but I watched. As the cafeteria lady took a big spoon with holes in it so the juices could go through, she dug down into a pot and put three string beans in a little bowl and handed them to the girl. And I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a small portion of those too, please. And she did the same thing for me. I went on down the line and I put different things on my tray. And as I got to the end, remember it was at the end of the line, the desserts. And I saw the most economically cut pieces of chocolate cake I'd ever seen <laughs> in my life. And I wondered if this word maybe had some other applications. So I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a large portion of that, please. <laughs> and she cut me the biggest piece of chocolate cake I'd ever seen in my life. And I said to myself, that's a good word. <laughs> the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I don't know about you people this morning, but I want a bigger portion of him. And I want you to have a bigger portion of his love for you, to be overwhelmed with a sense of his love for you. I, I think that's what Lewis wanted for people. I'll tie it up at the end and, and explain why that was so. In almost his dying words, he drives home that point. But nevertheless, let's see if we can use Lewis to find a greater portion of God's love for us. Um, he said in a lecture he gave at Oxford University to the English students and faculty in the 1930s, we fulfilled our whole duty to you if we can help you see some given tract of reality. I've wondered about this even myself. What did he mean by that? And, and if I understand reality, what are some dominant principles that will make it clear that maybe my own assumptions about reality hide from me? In one of the last, the very last book he published before he died, it's called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. Chapter 17 of that book, I think, is one of the most elegant things I've seen from Lewis's hand. There's a paragraph in there. I want to recite it to you because I think it will help us understand what he means about seeing a given tract of reality. 
Now, before I recite it, there's a word in the paragraph I want to define for you. Not to insult your intelligence, you probably know the word. But when I first read it, I had no clue what this word meant. So if you're like I was then, I, I define it for you. It's the word coruscation. Coruscation. Coruscation means a sudden flash of brightness. Um, I, I, I'd never seen a firefly in my life till I moved to the Midwest. Growing up in Southern California, the only thing I had seen that resembled it were the fireflies at Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland. <laughs> but we could talk about being in awe on a humid summer evening in the Midwest as we watch fireflies coruscating in the back garden. Or watching clouds, dark clouds, moving in our direction and seeing lightning coruscating in the clouds. Okay, so you got the word. Lewis making a distinction between gratitude and adoration or worship says, gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. But adoration asks, what must that being be like? whose far-off and momentary coruscations are like this. One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. I first read that when Voyager, the interplanetary probe, was speeding past Saturn, taking pictures, and sending them back to Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. I still have the Time magazine. I still have my National Geographic. I wanted to see the pictures of that planet, that mysterious planet, up close and personal. They discovered at that time that Saturn has a network of rings, and the outer ring of Saturn, they called it the F ring, is braided, is braided. And I started saying, using Lewis's question, what must God be like that he chose to braid the outer ring of Saturn? No, no human eye had ever seen it. I live among academics. I have friends who are physicists. I say, why is it braided? I've heard five explanations. Each one is a negation of the other four. I, there's no doubt in my mind, physicists will one day tell us conclusively why. I believe that. Physicists love those kinds of things. They like to keep niggling till they get it figured out. But in the meantime, I just say, wow, what must he be like? That no human eye had seen it. He braided the outer rings of Saturn. And a friend of mine, I shared that with him, and he said, yeah. And Jerry, we don't know if he didn't just braid it for the picture. I think of ships that park themselves over depths of the Pacific Ocean greater than the light of sun can reach and they dangle cameras into those depths and take pictures of fish, neon bright. Why? There's no light at those depths. There's no sight. Can't be to attract a mate. Matter of fact, how do fish at those depths get together? That itself is a mystery to me. <laughs> Can't be to camouflage from predators. And I think, what must God be like that he painted fish neon bright in the bowels of the ocean? Growing up in Southern California, I loved to see palm trees silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky, or mountain ranges like you love to see silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky here in Bend. Now in the Midwest, to see a cornfield silhouetted against an auburn <laughs> sunset sky. Actually, there's beauty there if one would willingly distill it out. We could have lived on a darkened planet, gotten word from on high there would be one sunset, we could have lined every west coast of every continent and every island on our globe and regaled our progeny with the beauty of that great event in our journals. But what must God be like that he has made our planet a perpetual kaleidoscope of sunrises and sunsets? And blessed be the heart of one who never tires of it. You watch a sunset dissolve before you, and as you grieve its loss, don't worry, there will be another one tomorrow. 
One star twinkling in a night sky should be enough to awaken awe and wonder in the mind and heart of every right-thinking and feeling individual. But what must God be like that he is so liberal with his glory? That he's glittered the night sky with stars and moons and shooting stars, comets and galaxies. And I wish you could have been with me when I was with a bunch of Wheaton College students up in our Northwoods campus up by Lake Superior as they pounded on my cabin door one summer evening and said, Jerry, they're out. And I went out and I watched the northern lights in reds and blues and greens and whites pulsating and coruscating as they filled the night air. And we responded to reality the way that only seemed appropriate to us in that moment. We stood on the ski dock and for two and a half hours, we sang songs of worship and adoration to God. What must God be like that he made delicate things like butterflies and hummingbirds, flower petals and peacock feathers? What do you do with those? G.K. Chesterton said, one elephant with a trunk looked odd, but every elephant with a trunk looked like a plot. God is calling us to attend to him. But Lewis is too honest a scholar and too honest a Christian for us to stop there because that's not a complete look at reality. And Lewis wants us to see it with all of its complexity. And so Lewis forces us to ask questions like this. What must God be like that there's AIDS babies born in Africa? What must God be like that there are earthquakes in Haiti and tsunamis in Indonesia and Japan? Lewis wrote, if our faith is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. He keeps us inclined. You know what makes me upset about the new atheism? The new atheism is no different than the old atheism or the older, older atheism. Most of them are people who have been hurt. My heart breaks for them. Some of them have been hurt by people who said they were Christians, but all of them vectored out too quickly. Their thought doesn't go deep enough. They didn't stay inclined. Lewis was an atheist. He stayed inclined. He vectored away from God because of the problem of evil issues, but he ended up still niggling with it. He wanted to understand reality, and eventually he began to get some satisfying solutions to the problem, and he came up with glorious answers. And he came up with glorious things that revealed a heart that was full, not a heart that was embittered, like you find in some of the new atheism. It was sad. But Lewis won't let us go there. He lets us look at all of it. The glory, the brilliant coruscations, the difficulties, he keeps us inclined. And at the end of the day, we come up with something that's more robust in our grasp. Lewis says, and this is the biggest idea in him, reality is iconoclastic. I can take you through all 74 books and I can show you this idea, either explicitly stated or in theme. What does he mean? An iconoclast is a person who breaks idols. I have an image of God. I I heard a great sermon, Pastor Ken preached, and, 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 and my understanding was enriched and it took my breath away. I read a book. I had a conversation with friends and somehow my, my borders of my understanding spread out a little further. I got a better bandwidth on life. But that image in the moment, as helpful as it may be, if I hold on to it too tightly, it will compete against my having a growing understanding. And the image, once helpful, now becomes an idol. And God, in his mercy, kicks out the walls of any temples we build for him because he wants to give us more of himself. The idea isn't new with Lewis. 
Baron von Hugel, philosopher of religion, spiritual director, he wrote in his letters to his niece, beware of the first clarity, press on to the second clarity, and the third clarity. Robert Browning in his poem, Rabbi Ben-Ezra, all of you write it down, Rabbi Ben-Ezra, that poem. Go home and Google it. If you're married, break it out every year on your anniversary. It starts, grow old along with me, the best is yet to be. About line 22 or 23, Browning says, Then welcome each rebuff that turns earth's smoothness rough. We can think we have it all figured out. But life is complex. It has, it, it's not smooth. It has peaks. It has valleys. It has texture. Welcome the things that happen, difficult as they may be, that help you see it the way it is rather than the way you would have it be. Augustine, he writes about it too. He says, The house of my soul is too small. Enlarge it, Lord, that you might enter in. Or Stephen, in his defense in Acts chapter 7, he's been accused of speaking against the temple. And when he gives his defense with this, with this ravaged crowd, picking up stones ready to kill him, he looks at them and he says, you think I'm speaking against this temple? Is this temple your idol? Do you think you've got God in that box of your present understanding? When God first appeared to Abraham, our father, the father of faith, it was in Mesopotamia, hundreds and hundreds of miles from this temple. And when God first appeared to Moses, it was in a Midian wilderness, and he appeared as a flame in a thorn bush, hundreds of miles from this temple. And when David wanted to build the temple, God said to him, David, David, I appreciate the sentiment, but don't you realize heaven is my throne, earth is just my footstool. How will you build a temple big enough to hold me? Lewis said, I want God, not my idea of God. I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. I want my spouse, not my idea of my spouse. I want myself, not my idea of myself. And Lucy, the most spiritually sensitive of all of the children who enter into Narnia, when she goes into Narnia on her second trip in Prince Caspian, and she sees Aslan the lion, the Christ figure of those books, for the first time, she exclaims, Aslan, you're bigger he said, oh no, child, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You will find me bigger. This, this is the reality Lewis wants us to understand. The thing that integrated his thinking was his faith. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, he said. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. His faith was flush with robust and rich understandings of the world crowded with God. He says every bush is a burning bush and the world is crowded with God. He walks everywhere incognito and our responsibility is to awaken to him and even more to remain awake in him. And what was it that Lewis saw that was most significant about the presence of God, the majesty of God, the richness of a robust understanding of God? and the glory of a robust emotional relationship to God was the love of God. That was the reality. There's where the large portion comes. Lewis said every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is in direct proportion to his or her love for God. Now, I don't want you to think that, that I agree with everything that Lewis said. 
I'm an academic. We're supposed to think critically. That means we're supposed to disagree at times. <laughs> I don't know if it's always good. Sometimes academics do this in a very obnoxious way. But Lewis wrote something that I disagree with. He wrote it in Mere Christianity. He said he thought pride was the great sin. Pride. He wasn't the only one that said it. St. Augustine, in his commentary on Psalm 19, said he thought pride was the greatest sin. Now, I, I, if I disagree with them, I, I assume I'm probably wrong, disagreeing with C.S. Lewis and Augustine. But let me see if I can make a case. When they said they thought pride was a great sin, in essence, they thought that it was the axiomatic sin around which all the others constellated, or the mainspring from which all other sinful act is generated. If they would have said they thought it was the apex of a process, and that it was the greatest because it was at the top of the apex, I would have signed on. I think that would be right. But if it's, in fact, the apex of a process, isn't there something beneath the apex that's far more substantive? So what precedes pride? If I can make my case. I'm not talking about pride of a job well done. I'm not talking about that pride that you take when you see a friend of yours or your child or your sibling or your parents do something and it made you proud of them. I'm talking about that form of pride that exhibits itself in pretense, makes itself look better than it actually is. We, we, we Christians can be infected by this sometimes. We'll marginalize the struggler in our midst, out of fellowship, carnal, backslidden. Though nobody says it explicitly, the implication is you have to be perfect in this community. Nobody is perfect, so it starts to breed pretense. How are you doing today? I'm fine, fine, fine. Don't talk about what's going on inside. Make ourselves look better than we are. But that's proud. That's image management. That's pretense. What precedes it when we drift in that direction? Well, I don't know what it is for you. But for me, if I start to move in that direction, it's usually fear and insecurity. If you knew me like I was, you might reject me. Or like I am, you might reject me. Would you sign on with that? Would you agree with me that usually fear and insecurity can move us towards some forms of pretense? If that's true, what's at the base of this pyramid? What is really the great sin? Perfect love casts out fear, it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. The Bible gives us a bit of an answer. If perfect love casts out fear, then a corollary for that would be imperfect love breeds anxiety. You and I have never been loved perfectly by another person well-meaning as they may have been, and we are at some level saddled with the burden of anxiety. It gets worse before it gets better because you and I have never loved anybody perfectly either, and the people who have looked to us have at some level been saddled with a burden of anxiety. We may do the best we know how, and others may have done the best they knew how towards us, but nobody can do it perfectly but one. And that one who loves with perfect love, he knows you completely. And he loves you utterly. And if what I'm saying is true, then the great sin is to live our lives in neglect of the love of God. If we're going to have a slice of reality, as Lewis would have us have, 
then a good place to begin would be to understand the largesse of God's portion of love for you and people he loves you. I think the place in Scripture where I see it most dramatically is in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon you that he should call you children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we're children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's dissect that passage for a little bit. I would like us to. Um, I, I believe that we've got this passage that starts talking about the fatherhood of God. And I've worked with students almost all of my adult life. For every 10 students that I meet who have had a bad father in their life, I find one out of the 10 who are turned off by the image of God as father in the Bible. I find nine who are so thirsty to fill the vacuum that they are enlivened by that message. All of us had fathers. Some did poorly. Some did well. None of them did it perfectly. But John is saying, I want you to know about one father who always gets it right. And this father loves you. He loves you. My best friend at Wheaton College is the is a theater professor, Mark Lewis. A brilliant, brilliant uh, actor. Professional actor. He was, he was on the soap operas. Maybe some of you saw him on television during the years when he performed on TV. Uh, performed on Broadway. He's a Shakespearean actor. And he came to teach at Wheaton College. At one time, he was sharing with me a story that I found so moving, I asked him for permission to tell, and he said yes. Uh, Mark was the eighth, the last born, eighth child in his family. He was an artist. All the rest of his family were, were somewhat fundamentalists. He was raised in a fundamentalist uh, a Christian family. Well-meaning, dear-hearted, but a bit rigid, a bit tight. And Mark marched to a different drum beat. And, and he desperately wanted to, to show his parents, particularly his father, how much he loved him. So one day when the parents were gone and, and, and one of the older siblings was supposed to be watching Mark, you know how that goes, he was about six. He got out his colored pencils, his felt-tip marking pens, his paints, his crayons, and he spent the entire day drawing a mural up the back wall of his house. And the whole time he's drawing the mural, he's saying, when Dad sees this, he's going to know how much I love him. He imagined him bringing in the neighbors and saying, look how much Mark loves us. Look what he did for us. Well, you know what happened when his folks got home. He got what for he said it wasn't that he got spanked that made him so sad. It was that his parents didn't see that he just wanted to let them know he loved them. Fast forward many years. Mark was directing the autumn play. His day would be like this. He would teach classes. He would meet with students in open office hours. He would engage in faculty governance committees. He would grade papers, and he would come home for one window, an hour of time, to collect his thoughts, to eat a meal, and to relax before he had to go back till late night uh, rehearsals and practices for the play. He's sitting in this ante room off of their kitchen that opens up into the dining room and family room, and he saw his six-year-old daughter, uh, Ruby, standing on a chair with a plastic basin in the sink and water splashing up everywhere. 
And Mark realizes, I just came home for a break. I need a break. I got to clean up this mess. He gets up, Ruby, Ruby, honey, what are you doing? Ruby bursts into tears. Mark's wife, Mary, says, Mark, she knew you were tired. She was just getting water in a basin so she could wash her feet. And Mark immediately flashes back to his own six-year-old experience. He says, oh, Ruby, honey, I'm so sorry. He helped her with the plastic basin. He said it was the coldest water he ever put his feet in in his life. <laughs> he said, you know, my parents didn't get it right. My dad missed it. As a father, I got it half right. Maybe one day Ruby will get it all right. There's one father, though, who never misses. We all connect with that story at some level because all of us have been the one who has been misunderstood by somebody, and we've all been the one who's done the misunderstanding. But one father always gets it right. Donald Miller, who wrote the book Blue Like Jazz, the sequel to that book was Searching for God Knows What. He said when he was in high school, he was in a social set at his high school, but he was always on the fringe. One day he was reading some poetry. He liked the poem. He memorized it. A couple weeks later, somebody said something at school. He said, oh, that reminds me of a poem I read, and he recited the poem, and they all go, Miller, you are smart. You are really smart. So it was the first time he ever felt good about himself. He said he started memorizing lots of poetry after that. But he said also he realized he needed to gain his sense of self based on how others saw him and that everybody he looked to was as insecure as he was. There's only one person who can give you a true sense of your identity, this father who loves you so much. Well, it says in this text that one day we're going to be like Jesus. One day he's going to make us like Christ. Not, we will never be like him in his deity. It's too late. You can never become uncreated. It's too late. You'll never be omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing, or omnipotent. When it says you'll be like Christ, it means you'll be like Christ in his perfect humanity. That somehow God is going to eradicate all the garbage from our life. And we will be whole one day. I, I, I don't know about you, but that passage means so much to me. I weary of my fallenness. I believe in the high ideal of love, but I've had sharp words with people I say I love most in the world. I believe in justice. But looking back on some places in my life, I realized I was unfair in my treatment of others. I didn't set out to be, but I realized it in retrospect, and it didn't make me happy to see it. I believe in truth, but there have been times when I didn't understand something and I projected my misunderstanding on that set of circumstances and wounded other people. Have you ever had these experiences or am I the only one? Do you with me weary of that in your life? There is going to come a day when God is going to change us inside out. One of the great passages in Lewis's Narnian Chronicles that for me I love most it's this place where, where it starts in uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. And that's written by C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, who knew nobody deserved to be named Clive Staples. Eustace is a little boy who has the skin of a boy under the heart of a dragon. And he is trouble from the get-go, the archetypal brat. He is so unself-aware, he doesn't see his brokenness. He needs to sit in Lewis's lecture where Lewis could give him some tract of reality. 
at least room relationship to himself. He ends up getting sucked into Narnia with his cousins, Edmund and Lucy. And in the magic of that land, he ends up turning into outside the very thing he's always been inside. And there comes this awakening moment when he looks in a pond and discovers that he is a dragon. Oh, his heart is so broken. His heart is so broken, and he wants to change himself. And there comes this place in the story where this lion shows up. He knows nothing about Oslan, the Christ figure. As he recounted the story later, he said, I was bigger in my dragon form than the lion, but I was so afraid of him. And the lion said, you must undress yourself. And with tears of humility rolling down his cheeks, Eustace said, I realize that dragons like lizards and snakes are scaly things and they can shed their proper skin. And so he thought, that's what I'll do. And uh, tremendous effort, he sheds his skin and he looks in the pond and still he's dragon. A second time, he tries and sheds his skin and still he is dragon. A third time, he sheds his skin and frustrated, he looks in the pond and realizes he can't fix what's broken in himself. And the lion says, I must undress you. And taking that lion claw, he goes through all that dragon flesh to the very dragon heart and makes him boy again. And there will come that day when all of us like Eustace will be undragoned. And I long for it. what about now? Well, one day we'll be like him. And it will be thrilling, won't it? Think about it. It's not going to be a static thing, heaven. If you know zero to a hundred bits of information about the infinite God, how much more is there still to know? Infinite amount, right? If you know zero to a thousand bits. If you know zero to a million bits, how much more is there still to know? I don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of God. I think heaven is going to be a time where we will be perpetually mind-blown. Wow! I didn't know that. I have a, I've had a 32-year theological con, uh, uh, conversation with a friend, a, a debate. Um, uh, my, my, my friend thinks, it's, it's what our first word's going to be when we get to heaven. My friend says he thinks it's going to be, oh. <laughs> oh. Now I see where that person I cared for so deeply, died so suddenly. Oh, now I see why there was that financial reversal. And I, I was stuck in desperate straits for so long. Oh, now I see why that disappointment occurred. Oh, it's interesting, but he's wrong. <laughs> I think the first words we're, we're going to say when we get to heaven are going to be, Wow, I didn't know this. Wow, I didn't know that either. Wow, wow, wow. Maybe it'll be, oh, wow. <laughs> but it won't be boring. Finitely perfect before the infinitely perfect God. But what about now? What about now? If one day we're going to have it all together, it means that now we don't have it all together. And John says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon you that you shall be called children of God. And such we are. 
It says, beloved, now we're children of God. Now in our brokenness. Now in our struggle. Now in those incongruities in our life where we're trying to get it figured out and we don't always get it right. Now. Let me see if I can illustrate what that's like. I remember when my kids were little. My wife and I, we, we, we read a bunch of books on how to raise children. We wanted to be responsible parents. We went to seminars. We kind of committed ourselves to a plan only to find out five years later all the research had been discredited and new things had been discovered. And our poor kids, you know, what's going to happen to them? We kind of had a way of going about uh, disciplining our kids. We would never discipline them for something that, that we hadn't instructed them about. My kids were creative. They found lots of things that we had to be, you know, making new standards for and so on. But nevertheless, we wouldn't spank them for something that we hadn't talked with them about. But once the standard was set, uh, we would give the punishment accordingly, often a timeout. If it was putting life or limb in danger, it would be a spanking. We didn't will them the spanking, but we willed that they would learn not to put their lives at limb in, in danger. Like when my one son pushed his best friend down the staircase at our house, there was a spanking that followed that. We don't want you pushing people down the staircase. And we would always talk through a liturgy. I'd say, what did I tell you not to do? Well, you told me, Daddy, not to push my friends down the staircase. What I say I would do if you did? You, you, you said you could spank me, Daddy. <laughs> do you think I love you any less because you did that? No, Dad, you don't love me any less. Is there anything you could ever do that would cause me to love you less? No, Dad, there's nothing I could do. But am I happy you did that? No, Dad, you're not happy. And then I would put my, uh, reinforce my love to their hindquarters. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and I never dismissed them after I was done spanking them without hugging them and hugging them till they were happy again. I don't want to make it seem like I did it perfectly every time because I certainly didn't. Those of you that are parents, you know what I'm talking about. But by and large, that's the way it went. You know what my kids would do after they were done with their spanking? They would turn around like this for the hug because I wanted them to know it wasn't them that I rejected but the thing that happened. But I loved them. They'd turn around like this for the hug. My boys, no problem. I'd give them a hug. I have three boys, one daughter. But my daughter would turn around like this for the hug. And I was stuck with a moral dilemma because Alicia's face would have leaked from every orifice. Her eyes would have leaked. Her nose would have leaked. Her mouth would have drooled. And she'd turn around like this with a hug. And my temptation was to say to her, um, Alicia, why, why don't you go take a shower and uh, <laughs> clean up a little bit, and when you come back, we'll have that great hug, you know? But that would communicate something I didn't want to communicate. And I would take her in my arms, and she would put her head on my shoulder, and she would leave traces of her DNA all over my clothes. <laughs> and in that day, I learned... Every father who loves his child bears the stain because he loves the child. We don't have it together. Our lives are a mess. But this one loves us and bears the stain because he loves the child. Another image. Uh, my wife, as she went through her, her times of pregnancy, it wasn't back in the days when they had these cutesy maternity clothes. The maternity section was tucked away in some department store way back in the corner. 
We couldn't afford to get very many outfits. She had a couple of outfits. We went through that period of life with some other women in the church, uh, couples, friends of ours, and there was this, uh, they all had couples of outfits, and, and consequently, there was a sort of wardrobe that made its way around the church. I remember one, one day after a Sunday service, I, I went up behind this blonde, and I put my arm around her, and I looked over, and it wasn't my wife. She was wearing my wife's clothes, but it wasn't her. Uh, as the babies were coming, we would always put aside a little bit of extra money. So as soon as Claudia could look down and see her feet again, she would be able to go out and buy a couple new outfits. Mothers love to get out of that maternity stuff finally. Have you ever seen a new mother who's got a couple of new outfits and a new baby where the baby and the outfits are in any way compatible? No, mom nurses the baby. She puts a diaper on her shoulder to burp the baby. She puts the baby's face right in the diaper. Does the baby hit the diaper? No. That new mother with that new outfit who loves that outfit but loves the baby more bears the stain because she loves the child. Do you see how great this love is? Verse 3 of that text says, everyone who has this hope fixed upon him, the hope that one day we'll be like him, the hope that even though we're not like him now, even now he calls us his child because he bears a stain because he loves the child. Everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. My dad was an old Marine during World War II. Tough guy. If you saw Saving Private Ryan, the D-Day invasion there, my dad did that three times in the South Pacific. He was in the first wave at Tarawa, the bloodiest battle of World War II. Second wave at Saipan, first wave at Tinian, where he was horribly injured. Big hero in the war. He was always present in my life, but I never heard him tell me he loved me until I was a sophomore in college. Put his arm around me one time, said, Jerry, I love you. What do you think I did when I heard that? You think I said, well, it's about time you said it, something like that? No, I, my eyes were flushed with tears. My heart melted, and I said, Dad, I, I, I love you too. And I found myself on weekends from college coming home to help him rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car. I wanted to show him I loved him. I remember thinking about it even at the time. You know, if I didn't know he loved me, I could have been coming home to rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car to try and earn his love, or knowing he loved me, I could have come home, raked the leaves, mowed the lawn, and washed the car to show him I understood he loved me. There's an eternal difference between those two motivations. And the scriptures say, get this in your heart. If you have struggles trying to obey God, it'll always be a struggle if you don't know that God loves you. But if you begin to understand he loves you, it's transformative. What's the great sin? Living in neglect of God's love. C.S. Lewis said, when you read a book, let the story wash over you. Receive the literature. Don't use it. Receive it first. I'm an academic. I like to think critically about things. doesn't mean you can't be sympathetic about what you're thinking. But I want to engage. I don't want to go into a sermon and think critically about everything that's said. I want to think critically about it later. But I want to hear the message that God might have for me at that moment. If I go to a movie, I like to think critically about stories. But I'm going to go into the movie and let it wash over me first and then think about it critically later. Why was I so moved by that one particular point? I remember once I was on an airplane. And I was coming home and there was a movie and I watched it. And it was called The Notebook. 
How many of you saw that movie? It's a chick flick, right? But I was deeply moved by that movie. How many of you didn't see it? For the sake of you, I'll give you a little background. Uh, the movie stars James Garner and Gina Rowland. And also, it stars Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams. Starts off with James Garner coming to this uh, rest home, and he's got a book in hand, and he's going to read a story to this old lady, and, and he comes up to her, and, and the old lady's standoffish, and a nurse has to say, it's okay, he comes to read to you every day. And the image that's portrayed for you at the beginning of this movie is there's this real tender-hearted, nice old guy who goes and volunteers at the rest home to read stories to old people. That's cool. And so he starts reading the story to this old lady. And the story flashes back to a young couple who, who are in the south, in this small town. And it's a town where the boy has grown up, but the girl has come with her rather wealthy family to vacation at their cottage on the lake. You, you, you discover that the story that's being told is, is a love story, but it's a love story that seems to have everything counting against it. It's never going to work. She comes from wealth. He's, he's, he's rather poor, of humble means. He, he's got an education. He has a high school degree. He likes poetry. He loves to read uh, Walt Whitman. But she has an education from all the right schools. Her family's together. Pretentious as all get out, but they're together. There's a father, a mother, the daughter. His family's obviously broken, but we don't know why. There's a father and a son no mother, we don't know if there was a divorce or a death, but obviously there was some pain in that family. The boy aggressively seeks to have a relationship with the girl, but everything pounds against this relationship ever coming to be. The summer's over, and the parents don't want the relationship to go on. The boy promises he'll write every day, and he does dutifully. And the mother intercepts the mail before the daughter ever gets it, and she thinks she never really was cared for by this young man. World War II breaks out, and the conditions of history have separated them even further from each other, and it looks like this relationship is never going to work. It's about that time in the movie when we see James Garner reading the story to Gina Rollins that all of a sudden it dawns on us. It's their story. He is reading the story to his wife who has dementia and doesn't remember. There comes this tender scene in the movie towards the end where they're sitting at a table at the end of the day. They've had a nice dinner. There's a rose and a bud vase. There's a candle burning. There's a record player playing the music that had informed so much of their relationship in this whole environment is pulsating the love of this man for this woman. He finishes the story, and she says, that's the most beautiful love story I've ever heard in my life. And it sounds so familiar to me. And in that moment, cognition washes across her face. And she says, it's our story, isn't it? And he says, yes. She says, how much time do we have? He says, last time it was five minutes she says, how are the children? That's a story a mother would ask, or a question a mother would ask, isn't it? He says, they're fine. They came to see you today. She says, please tell them. I love them. He says, I will. The music is still playing. And she says, take me in your arms. Hold me. Let's dance. And they start dancing. 
in the floor of that room. And as quickly as she came into cognition, she drops out of cognition and she finds herself in the arms of a stranger and she starts screaming. And the orderlies have to come in to sedate her. And James Garner's character is standing there, leaning against the wall, biting his knuckle, weeping. And it was at that moment I lost it. Later, I think, why was that so moving to me? And it dawned on me. This story is all of our stories. You see, we are perpetually loved. We have been perpetually pursued. And there's so many things in our life that count against the love ever working. We have lived our lives in dementia. And there come those moments when all of a sudden cognition comes and we get it. And as quickly as we fall into cognition, how often we quickly fall out and forget people. God loves you. God knows you and he loves you. And all the wrong he has forgiven, he loves you. Just before C.S. Lewis died, he got a letter from a little girl in America. She was 11 years old. She had read the Narnian Chronicles. She really liked them. And she wrote to him and said about how much she loved the books. Lewis was on his deathbed. He would die in three and a half weeks. If Lewis never responded to that letter, it wouldn't have really mattered and all of us would have understood. But here's this great Christian on the threshold of eternity writing a letter to an 11-year-old girl in America on the threshold of her earthly life. And he said to her this, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much will go wrong with you. And I pray you may always do so. That's my prayer for each of you. And if you have trouble with it, go back to the scriptures. See how much he loves you. Read his love story. And let the cognition wash over you. And let your love be a response to that love he's given you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for being relentless and enduring and long-suffering in your love for us. Forgive us for the sin of neglect of that love. And bring us into an ever-enriched and full understanding that we are people deeply loved of you and that all that we do as we understand that slice of reality be lived in the light of that grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.